0: You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Acts chapter 17, if you don't mind. Acts chapter 17 a few uh few announcements updates um in the last few weeks last couple of weeks uh our building over there our building project has changed drastically um inside of that building i wish you could see it you will get to see it Uh, tomorrow i'm going to do a uh, walkthrough video tomorrow we'll post it on facebook so just be looking for that uh just to say that um, what if you've been with us for a while, if you've been at High Park for a while, um, you know what the building looked like, you know if you came and, and did the Bible verses uh, back in May, I think it was, uh, you know what it looked like then. I, I want you to know, if you watch that video tomorrow, uh, you are going to be surprised and shocked at how far that building has come along how absolutely gorgeous it looks. Uh, the painting uh, on the inside of it is, I think, 99% done. Uh, they're starting to work on flooring, uh, starting to work on some of the finished work in the bathrooms. Uh, drop ceilings have been put in upstairs. Uh, it's just incredible last couple of weeks how much change has happened inside. So tomorrow, I'm going to walk through, do a little quick video tomorrow. We'll post it on Facebook. I'm sure you'll be able to see our website as well. I want you to check that out, look at it, and get excited about that. Uh, we're still on track. That our first service back by there. Our dedication service will be on October the 25th. Uh, we're already working on that. Uh, we have hopefully some, maybe some special guests here on that day. Uh, and uh, just just keep uh, keep your ears your eyes open. Not connected. Block note need to be so that you get all the updates and all that there. A couple things in your bulletin that you got online in email through clock this morning. Uh, we do have a business meeting, a call conference this afternoon, that is for the business of approving the nominating report that has been put together for the third year. So that'll be this afternoon, at six thirty. And then also, we are planning on uh, doing a wanna. A wanna is going to start in September, although it's like everything else with a lot of changes. Um, we do need a couple things. First of all, if who are willing to serve in Iwana, uh, please connect with Miss Kelly uh, either by email, or contact her here at the church. Make sure you uh, get all the information you need on how that's gonna be done and be done safely. And then, secondly, uh, if your kids uh, are available and are um, okay with them coming, we would love to have them. Have some things in place, some protocols in place to make sure everybody safe. Uh, and uh, we're going to be doing our due diligence on that. We want so please spread the word don't mind. Acts chapter 17, I want to read through uh, these first nine verses, don't mind. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in as was his custom on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scripture, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, and Christ was dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined, Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, that is, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money
1: as a security for Jason and the rest, they let them go. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. Thank you for the blessings of this past week. Thank you, Father, that you have been so gracious to us that every time we run to you, meet us with grace. Father, there have been so many times in my own life that I didn't deserve your grace. Even today, Father, the grace that you poured out in my life already today, and by allow me to wake up today. Allow me to be able to be here and gather. To have the opportunity to get into God's Word today, to have an opportunity to worship Lord all of those are gifts of your grace and none of that I've observed none of it by any of my good because Paul said my good works is the father, it is a gift we thank while we ask for your guidance in your word today, we ask Father for your Spirit to work in our hearts, to bring about the change
0: that you brought about in our lives. Father, your word is not meant to just make us smarter.
1: it is meant to change our lives. That change happens from inside out. Father, we thank you for goodness and grace and protection, Father, for healing you've continued to do in the lives of this body of believers that have gone through a lot of hardship in the last six, eight months. Father, you have heard, and you have answered. But also know, Father, that there are many connected to this congregation, many in our community who are who are struggling with depression. Loneliness, With all of the restrictions, Father, that we're living under right now, that it has, it has
0: caused more and more people to consider suicide, harming themselves, being separated from their family and friends. And Father, we pray for your still small voice, and those places that are dark, and cold, those places that are lonely, those places where people are dwelling, where they believe that everyone is forsaken. Them. I pray, Father, that your voice will be the loudest voice that they. I pray Father that you would heal their hearts I pray that they would that they would turn their eyes and their hearts towards light and away from darkness. I pray Father that they would remember
1: the words that you have spoken to us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Father, I pray and ask that you heal bless. I pray Father for our country I pray for our leaders, politicians, those who placed in elected service i pray I pray Father that their hearts would be in submission. I pray, Father, that all things, more than their own pride and their own arrogance, own, they would truly be servants of the people. To be servants of the people requires humility. I pray, Father, that they would lead, not according to their own agenda. Father, we also want to lift up those who are getting ready to go back on display. We know, Father, that we have many teachers in our congregation, many administrators, both elementary school, the high school, middle school, college. Father, I just pray comfort, peace, guidance, and business. Father, I know that a lot of upheaval, a lot of uh, worry, there's a lot of concern, there's a lot of things. Father, they are just absolutely overwhelmed with right now. How to do class, how to teach, how to how to reach their students, how to make sure they accomplish all that needs to be accomplished in this first semester. Father,
0: we pray for your wisdom and your guidance for each of these teachers and administrators. I pray, Father, that they would know that they're loved not
1: only by this church, but this community. Father, I pray that parents that they have to interact with, that, that there would also be a part of humility, not only from teachers and leaders, but also. Father, and all these things easy for us to rip fear. Father, you've not given us a spirit of fear. as Christ's followers, we're not to be frozen in fear. For wisdom, love. Father, we are to go. Father, I pray that you would help us exactly thank you for each person that's here this morning. Thank you for each person watching you find today. I pray that you habitually bless Especially in these days from the Pray Father that you fill yourself with them in a way a deeper way that maybe they've never ever sensed or even felt or even experienced. Father, you are still on the throne. No virus, no king, no politician. No throne. Your right, Father, we recognize barring well, while there we find greater asking Christ. Let's start out with an article this morning. I want to read excerpts excerpt from it's by a guy by the name of Ryan Burge. Brian Burge is a
0: pastor. He's a uh he's a guy that does a lot of writing, especially within the Southern Baptist realm. Uh does a lot of articles, blogs and otherwise I heard about this article through a, a podcast that I listen to on a regular basis. I went to read the article for myself, and, and the title of the article got my attention right off the bat. Let me read the title of it to you. It says, On LGBT and Women's Equality, Start Statistical Reality is Coming for White Evangelicals. That's a that's a heading that will get your attention, right? So the, the heading seems to indicate that the LGBT movement and women's equality is is focusing on, turning their attention upon white evangelicals, which we happen to be. Uh, Our church just happens to be very diverse, and we're not just white evangelicals. We're all kinds of different ethnicities and race, and thank God for that. Here's what the article says is the first paragraph. It says, among the important changes occurring in the U.S. spiritual landscape, the shift away from religious affiliation in the last 40 years is the most seismic and most significant. The rise of that demographic known as the nuns, that means those who have no religious affiliation whatsoever, has gone from 5% of the population in 1972 to 23% of the population in 2018. Now, get what he's saying. First paragraph, he says, more and more people affiliate or describe themselves as nuns, which means they have no affiliation to Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Catholicism, or any other ism under the sun. Next paragraph, the phenomenon, however, has left, <clears throat> has left white evangelical Christianity numbers practically untouched. In fact, the nation's share of white Protestants has only dropped two percentage points. So he says that even in spite of all of this, that, that the evangelical church is pretty much kind of stable. It hasn't really changed that much. But here's the paragraph you need to hear. Evangelicalism is on a collision course, however, with its culture that is rapidly liberalizing on two areas that define evangelical theology, their view of homosexuality and the role of women in the life of the church. A tradition quite literally named for its ability to bring new
1: people to faith is finding that task harder each passing year as the doctrines of tradition. The doctrines
0: of tradition move further out of step with the country at large. Let me me break that down. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that evangelicals, the Christian church, Protestant churches, uh, are are finding themselves further and further and further removed from the culture in which they live. And and his problem, or the problem that he highlights here is, is that it's because of the doctrines of the church that has removed the church from its culture. There is a great divide between where your typical Southern Baptist church is and its doctrines and the typical 23-year-old, 25-year-old, 28-year-old, 35-year-old in the community in which they serve. And he says that the issue is the doctrines of tradition. Notice this, the doctrines of tradition, not necessarily the doctrines of the Bible. 2008, just one in three white evangelicals between the ages of 18 and 35 Believe that same-sex couples should have the right to be married. So, in 2008, one in three white evangelicals between the ages of 13, 18 and 35 believed that same-sex couples should have the right to marry. Now, hear this: Beginning in 2012, the acceptance of gay marriage jumped from 36 percent to 56 percent in six years among those in the ages between 18 and 35. Now, now get this: In just six years, it went from 36 to 56 percent. More than half of those in that age range between 18 and 35 now say that it is not a problem for two men or two women to be married in an evangelical church. This author says that there is reason to believe that two-thirds of young evangelicals now disagree with their church's
1: position on this particular issue. That's staggering. That two-thirds of that demographic now.
0: Disagree with the local church on what marriage is, the actual foundation of our society and culture? Listen to this. When one, of the dominant, one of the dominant understandings of how churches attract new members is referred to as religious economy of theory. In this view, churches are equated with businesses. Each provides a product to a potential audience. If the product is palatable or acceptable or culturally acceptable, it will see an increase in sales expressed as church attendance. If the church does not meet the needs of consumers, attendance will dwindle and the church will go
1: out of business. Let me explain what he's saying. He's saying that unless the church gets with the culture,
0: then we can expect more churches to die. So when you you look at these statistics and you look at what he's saying, He's saying that there is a divide between the evangelical church and the culture. I don't disagree with that. I think you see that. I think think if you're watching the news or you're tuning into Facebook or any social media, you see that divide. I think it's palatable. I think it's very clear that there is a division between Christianity and the culture at large. So, with that in mind, there there are two possibilities here. And in the article, he gets to it eventually. He says there's, there's two options for the church here. One, is the church continues to stick with their traditional doctrine. Now, I think it's interesting that he doesn't use biblical doctrine. He says traditional doctrine, as if what we believe has been the result of tradition, not guided by Scripture. He says one option is to stick with that, continue to stick with your traditions, continue to stick with with what you believe, and and as a result, watch the church dwindle and die. Or, he says, the other option would be is to begin to offer what the culture wants, and that is basically an acquiescence to to what the culture believes. That that we align our doctrines more with what cultural say, culture says is acceptable and palatable, and therefore, as a result, gain more people, and as a result, continue to live and thrive and have money and
1: buildings and blah blah blah. It's interesting isn't it, that the two options he provides is either stick with your doctrine and die, or compromise and thrive. I wonder if Paul would agree with that. I wonder,
0: I wonder how Paul would come down on an article like that. Would, would Paul pick up that article, look at it, and go, uh, well, yeah, you, you're going to have to make your message uh, tune in a little bit to culture, or, or would Paul take a different position? Well, I think you've seen up to this point that Paul obviously takes a different position because over and over and over again. Where do we find Paul? We find Paul being beaten with rods. We find him thrown into jail. We, We find him consistently teaching the same message, not a tradition handed down from men, but biblically, what the Bible teaches as true doctrine, Paul continually sticks by, even to the point of after he gets beaten nearly to death, turns right around and walks right back into the community that just ran him out of town. So no, I don't think Paul would agree that acquiescence to the culture at large is the right path to church. Sure. Paul, after being thrown into the Philippian jail and being released miraculously, he, he heads over to Thessalonica. Now Thessalonica, I believe again that, that Paul had his eyes on this particular city, some 200,000 people strong. It was a port city. Thessalonica was interesting in that it was part of the Roman Empire, but because of an agreement back in about uh, B.C. 52 or 42, Thessalonica was actually a free state. They were a free province. They had the ability to establish their own government and their own leaders. Although they were connected to the Roman Empire, they had the freedom to do and live as they pleased. So when you walk into Thessalonica, it was very much a Greek culture, but you didn't see a, a lot of the Roman presence that you saw in other communities. It's because they had freedom there. And with that freedom came all kinds of religions and all kinds of beliefs predominantly surrounding around Greek mythology and those Greek gods that so many were believing in, following, and worshiping in Thessalonica and the region around those areas. Paul is going into a region that, as he goes further and further and further away from his home base of Antioch, the further he goes into Macedonia and then next week we'll be in Athens. He gets into a culture that is vastly different than, than anything he's experienced before. The closest that came to it would have been Lystra and Derby, those two areas that he went in that were predominantly Gentile. As he moves further into Macedonia and further south towards Athens, he keeps coming into a context that is vastly different in the streets of Thessalonica and Athens and Macedonia.
1: There was all kinds of sin that was out in public view. There's all kinds of false worship, false gods.
0: Is Paul now going to all of a sudden acquiesce his theology to fit the community around him, or is he going to continue to preach the doctrines, not traditions, but that which the Bible says is true? What's Paul going to do? Paul wants to plant churches. Paul wants to establish healthy churches in these areas. Well, What's the best way to do that? Is it
1: standing upon the word, truth of God, or is it compromise? Paul's pain, his beatings, his hatred that people have for Paul, it's everywhere he goes.
0: Is that unique to Paul? Is is what Paul, Paul's experience in Macedonia, what we saw in Asia Minor, is that something that is is unique to Paul? Do you remember when Paul was called? He had that experience with Jesus on the Damascus Road. Jesus told Paul, that number one, he was going to be a missionary to the Gentile, and number two, that he was going to suffer for his name.
1: Well, I think we've seen over and over again
0: Paul fulfilling both of those, both of those callings in his life. But is that something unique to Paul? Suffering for the, for the cause of the gospel, c- continuing to make a stand upon what is true, regardless of what is going to happen in the society in which he finds himself, is that unique to Paul or is that something that that we should all expect. Turn over to John chapter 15. I want you to hear what Jesus said about it. John 15, which is, is one of my favorite chapters, really, in the entire New Testament. Um, I, I love what Jesus has to say in this chapter. And after he talks about abiding in the vine to bear, bro- to bear fruit, that, that every branch that, that is connected to the vine bears fruit and much fruit, he, he talks in verse 18. I want you to see what Jesus says. And I want you to imagine that Jesus is looking straight at you, and he's saying these words directly to
1: you. Listen to what Jesus says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me, for it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. Did you get that? Let that sink in for just a moment. Jesus says, if if you are aligned with the world, you will
0: be celebrated. You will be loved. You will be embraced. You'll be exalted. You'll be patted on the back. You'll be their best friend if you will be just like the world. The world will love you. Far too many Christians, far too many disciples of Jesus, are trying to figure out how they can be loved by
1: the world and yet still follow Jesus. Jesus says, But because you are not of the world, but I
0: chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's pretty good logic, isn't it? Jesus says, you're not of the world because I called you out of
1: the world. You live in a world, you live in a culture, but you're not of that culture. You're my child. And as a result, you can't love the world and be right with me. If
0: you try to love the world, they'll embrace you, but I can tell you right now, that's going to cause some major tension between me and you because you're not of the world. That's not who you are anymore. Remember that. Remember the word. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Go back to the facts. So is this something that is only unique to Paul? Absolutely not. Jesus makes it very clear that, that by being called out of the world, which is exactly what happened when you put your faith in Jesus, you were called out of the world, given brand new life. So Jesus makes it very clear, and Paul makes it very clear, that to follow Jesus is to accept the fact that you're no longer part of the world and should no longer seek friendship with the world. And even beyond that, that being separated from the world, but yet living in a broken
1: world, you can expect some pushback at times. How can we be liked by the world and still follow Jesus? Can we reconcile those two? We can't. Yet I see many Christians trying to reconcile exactly that on Facebook just about every week.
0: People that I know have put their faith in Jesus, yet in their social media platform, they're trying to figure out some way where they can appeal to the world and, and not be hated by the world. taking a stand on any particular daughter and i'm not saying facebook is the best best place to do that bible
1: what i find over and over again is this attempt to try to be both liked by the world and follow jesus faith why was paul hated so much let's take a look at what happens in thessalonica what we're going to find in
0: thessalonica is six things that paul does that I think brings suffering and pain into his life. And he does it willingly, and get get this, it's, it's the same thing we're called. But when you do these things, I promise you, you do them long enough and you do them frequently enough, you're going to find that the world doesn't agree with you very often. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul, we've seen this with him consistently. He goes into a new town. He looks for a synagogue. If there's a synagogue, he begins there because Paul knows that if he's going to get a church established there, that it's better to start with some people that you might have a little bit of agreement with, especially in this Greek culture. So he goes to the synagogue and he went in there, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days. So, so Paul is there at least three weeks, but I think he was there longer than that. When you go over to the book of First Thessalonians, which is the church that Paul establishes at this particular point of his journey, this second missionary journey here in chapter 17, Paul is going to establish a church there. It's amazing that he's able to do that in only three to five weeks, but he's able to do that so that when he leaves, there's a presence of the gospel in that particular area that continues on even though he's not there. Now, he'll eventually send Timothy back there By the time he writes the letter to the church at Thessalonica, we find a church that is absolutely on fire. We find a church that is telling everybody about Jesus. We find a church that is absolutely established in doctrine. How did that happen? Notice what Paul does when he goes into the synagogue. There's six words here, six Greek words. Some of them are unique to this text. And a few of them are used several times in the book of Acts, and I want you to hone in on these six words. Write them down if you want. Underline them in your
1: Bible. First one is, for three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them. He reasoned.
0: Paul reasoned with them. What does that mean? It's used ten times in the book of Acts, and specifically in those ten times, it's connected to Paul's ministry. And it often is used to describe Paul's ability of teaching and, and, what, and how, he is, how he is teaching in the synagogue and whether it be on a riverbank or wherever he is, Luke tells us that multiple times Paul reasoned. This was Paul's primary way of teaching. It seems to indicate that Paul in these synagogue meetings or riverbank meetings or wherever he was would allow some questions to be asked. So it wasn't just Paul standing, in front of a group of people like I do here each and every week, where basically he does all the talking, they do all the listening. Paul says there was a reasoning or a or an interchange, uh, a connection where they were debating and talking about big questions of life concerning what Paul is teaching. Remember, he's in a synagogue of Jews. They are, they are believers or are God worshipers, a one true God. They do not accept Jesus if they'd even heard of him as Messiah. But Paul is reasoning with he's engaging with them. Now in Greek culture, there was a a big movement of philosophy, philosophical debate where they're trying to find what truth is. That is not what is happening here. Paul is saying truth has already been revealed. God has spoken and he has spoken very clearly. And what God has said is that this man named Jesus is
1: his chosen one, his Messiah. He's reasoning. God has spoken. There is truth. Let me tell you what God has said. So he's reasoning with them from
0: the scriptures, not from tradition, not from his opinions, not from what he had been told somewhere else. Paul takes that synagogue directly to the Old
1: Testament. So he's reasoning. Notice what else Paul is doing. It says that he's explaining. Paul is explaining what is
0: happening in the text, he is showing them how the text pointed to Jesus all along and how that the Old Testament prophets pointed to not only Jesus' arrival, but his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He is taking them to the text and he's explaining to them and debating with them and answering their questions that they pose about what is happening in the text. No doubt they're bringing their worldview to the table. No doubt they're bringing their Judaism to bear on what Paul is saying. And Paul is explaining
1: and he's reasoning. Notice what else Paul does. He says that he's proving. Not only is he reasoning, explaining,
0: but he's setting the truth in front of people and saying, here's the truth, you've got to deal with it. Does this sound confrontational? Does it, does it sound like Paul has walked into this synagogue as though he has some answers? Does it sound as though Paul is, is saying to the crowd, you've got a choice to make, and if you make the wrong one, there's going to be some circumstances connected to that? If that's the way Paul sounds, that's exactly the way Paul is delivering. Paul is saying there's two choices here. Or there's, a, there's a choice. There's two roads. There's two roads you can choose to ignore, or you can choose to surrender. But I'm going to present the truth to you. And I'm going to explain it. I'm going to reason with you. And I'm going to show you why it's true. Not only that, it says that Paul proclaimed. Notice that it reasoned, he explained, he
1: proved, he proclaimed. Within that word is. Paul, stating clearly and concisely why he believes what he believes. He's proclaiming. The the idea of
0: of the proclamation of the gospel, the the voicing of the gospel, the the heralding of the gospel. This church at Thessalonica, when you go over and look at chapter 1 in that particular
1: letter, Paul says about the church at Thessalonica that they trumpeted forth the gospel. They proclaimed it that it is meant to be spoken, it is meant to be heralded, it is meant to be trumpeted,
0: and Paul is doing exactly that. Notice what else Paul says here, or what Luke describes Paul doing, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded. Persuaded. Are we to persuade people to consider the gospel? Absolutely we are. Now, we're not out there selling eternal life. We're not out there selling product. We're not out there trying to to push people into into saying some prayer or doing some action just so we can feel good about ourselves and put a little notch on our belt about how great we are and how faithful we are. We are out there to reason, to proclaim, to teach, to exalt, and all that we see here for the purpose of seeing a person
1: consider that they could be wrong. That's where Paul's going here. He's in a synagogue with people who believe
0: that works of the law is going to bring them into the kingdom. Now, if those people are wrong, and of course they were, and anyone who still puts their faith in the idea that they can be a good enough person to get into the kingdom, that person, can we all agree, is wrong. And if they're wrong and we know what the truth is, we have an obligation to tell that person that if you continue to try to keep the law, if you try to continue to be a good person, if you try to continue to put more good stuff on this side of the equation than on this, you will end up in eternal torment in a place called hell. We have an obligation to do that.
1: So yes, people need to be persuaded. We don't manipulate. We don't coerce. We don't push. Because we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who
0: draws the person to salvation. We know that we are the bearer of truth, that we are to reason, we are to explain, we are to proclaim, but we never manipulate a person. We, we never coerce them or, or try to push them into something. We allow the Holy Spirit to do the work that only He can do. Paul said, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, he says that, that our ministry is a ministry of persuasion. Now, before we can persuade someone, we've got, to, we've got to understand that what we have and what we've experienced is true. And that
1: what we have and what we've experienced and what we found in Jesus, that person desperately needs. He persuaded. Them. And then finally, notice this. It says, verse 4, they were persuaded and they joined.
0: Paul, oh, that, that, all, all six of these words are verbs, action words. So, Paul, at some point, after he had explained, and after he had reasoned, and after he had debated, and after he had answered their questions, and some people were probably a little harsh, and some people were like really wanting to understand, and Paul's been through all this. You've got to understand this is taking some time. This wasn't a one-off event. Paul has consistently, at least over three Sabbaths, been available to these people to reason and to, to answer their questions and, and any objections that. But it was all leading towards persuading. And them having an opportunity to join. Paul led them to join. What does that mean? Does that mean to join the church at Thessalonica? No. But to join the church universal, the body of Christ, to, to come to the place where they are ready to surrender everything to Christ.
1: We've got to get to the point of, ex- if we're explaining and persuading, proclaiming, there's got to be some point where we look that person in the eye and go, Today's the day of salvation. What's keeping you
0: today from putting your faith in Jesus and turning from your broken life? What is preventing you from doing it today? We've got to get to that point. We've got to put it out there to say today's the day you join
1: because you have no opportunity. You may never have another opportunity again. These are the six things that Paul does consistently.
0: Does he do them all six in every place he goes? No. But over and over again, we find Paul doing these things. We find him reasoning. We find him explaining. We find him proving. We find him proclaiming. We find him persuading and we find him issuing the challenge to join, to be part of the body of Christ, to repent and turn towards light and away from darkness. This is what we find Paul doing, and this
1: is exactly what every disciple of Jesus has been called to do. We've been called to do exactly the same thing. What kind of response did Paul get? What kind,
0: of, what kind of response did Paul get? Well, you're not going to be surprised by this, verse 5. But the Jews
1: were jealous. What were they jealous of? Well, we're not really told. Apparently, these Jews had a lot of influence in this particular
0: arena, this area. People began to ask and engage in, in Paul's, what Paul is proclaiming. They begin to engage with Paul, and they see people begin to turn towards Paul's teachings and away from theirs. I mean, think about it. What Paul is teaching couldn't be contrasted more with what Jews were teaching. These Jews find their income, their support, their status in society based off what they were doing in the synagogue. And now Paul has become a threat to that. So they were jealous. And taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. Jason was a guy Paul had made a contact with. Jason was probably a guy who came to faith in Christ. Jason was on fire for Christ. They were meeting at his house. This was probably the place where they were continuing to engage in reasoning and proclamation and teaching. Paul was continuing to engage in the ministry at Jason's house. So they came to his house seeking to bring them out to the crowd, who? Paul and Silas. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason out. Some of the brothers before the city authorities, and this is what they were claiming. These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. That is an important statement. That the gospel that changed your life, the gospel we've been called to proclaim, is a world-changing gospel. Listen, the, the issues that we see in our community right now, what we're seeing on the news every single day with riots, racial tensions, people who are absolutely leading causes, who have absolutely no authority, no integrity. What is the answer to every bit of that? Listen to what I'm telling you. It is not an election. It is not a Republican. It is not a Democrat. It is not an Independent. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes people's hearts from the inside out. That is the answer to racism. It is the answer to division. It is the answer to the politics. It is the answer to all of it. And who has that? Who has that promise? The body of Jesus Christ
1: you're putting your hopes in a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent to fix this mess, you are going to be sadly heartbroken. Paul has escaped out of the city, but
0: Jason is going to take the brunt of it. They say these men have come to turn the world upside down. I would offer to you,
1: the gospel turns the world right side up, not upside down. Now, if you're lost, the gospel's going to mess up. If you're lost and you're living in sin, oh yeah, the gospel's going to wreck
0: your life. But hear me clearly, it's not turning things upside down, it's turning things upside up. Any person who's ever came to faith in Christ knows that on the backside of putting their faith in
1: Jesus is the best life they've ever found. Is it hard? Yeah, it's hard. But my goodness, there's nothing in this world that's required to follow. So there's going to be a violent response. These men have
0: come to turn the world upside down, and Jason has received them. Jason is collaborating with them. He's received them. They all act against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. Is what they're saying true? Yeah, it's true. Is Paul advocating for another king? Yeah, he's advocating for another king. His name's Jesus. The guy who died on a cross and resurrected, who is far greater than any Caesar, could ever think about being. Yes, Paul is absolutely, as he's reasoning, as he's arguing, as he's debating, he's saying there is a king greater than Caesar. His name is Jesus. People in the city authorities
1: were disturbed. The gospel's disturbing. It just is. You live your life thinking that I'm okay, you're okay,
0: and the world's okay, right? And then you grow up a little bit, and you find out the world's not okay. And then you begin to try to answer the question, why is the world not okay? You know, our kids, we try to protect them from the brokenness of this world. It's getting harder to do that, isn't it? It's getting harder to help them keep that innocence that, that, they, that they know. It's, it's so hard now. Everything's creeping in, and, and they get exposed to something on the news or something I'm listening to on the radio. And it poses a question in the mind of our of our young children. Maybe the world is not a safe place. You have to have conversations with your kids when you go to Walmart. Maybe you have that same conversation. Now you got to stay with me. Don't you? Don't you dare get out of my sight. Well, why is that, mom? Why, why do I have to stay with
1: you? Why can't I walk over there? Well, just some people in the world that are not very nice people. I didn't know that there was things like that in the world. And all of a
0: sudden, you begin to see the layers peel back. They begin to realize the world is a broken
1: upside-down place, And the gospel, the gospel is what puts things off. Going through life, we begin to answer, try to answer these questions Is what's wrong with the world?
0: It's one of those big life questions, right? Your coworkers, your family members who, who maybe are not following Jesus, they've got a big question in their mind and their question is why is the world in such a mess? And, and one of the answers that they've got is that that the world is a mess is because it's a societal problem. In other words, we don't have enough education, we don't have enough food, we don't have enough of all these things. So if we could just fix all these things, we can have a utopia. You've heard that in the news, no doubt, from some of the riots. That if we could just if we could just fix all the society's problems, then everything's going to be okay, and we could all live in a heaven on earth. It's a lie. Don't
1: believe it. It's a lie. You know why it's a lie? How does society get broken? Because of broken people. People who were born. Broken sinner, as the Bible describes all of
0: us before we came to faith in Christ and describes the world, that they are broken in their inner man and inner woman. Born that way. You don't have a, you don't listen, you don't have enough education, you don't have enough money, you don't have enough social programs to fix the heart problem. Only Jesus can do that. Yeah, there's gonna be a problem. There's gonna be some unrest especially when people begin to realize that they're broken. People don't want to hear that, that they're broken. It's everybody else's problem. I'm the victim. Everyone else is the problem. So why is Paul getting chased out of town? Look at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And it says that those Jews there were more, more receptive to what Paul had to say. They were more noble, the Bible says. But guess what happens? These same Jews that stirred things up in Thessalonica, we saw this in Lystra, Derbe, and Iconium, the same thing. They traveled 50 miles to Berea to shut Paul down. And we have to ask you a question, why does Paul constantly have to face this kind of opposition?
1: And, and as, a, as a direct aside, why will you face opposition because of your stand for Christ? Why is it that that our world reacts and reacts violently
0: at times, either in their words or their actions. Why is it that you may have to face this? I want to be as honest as I can with you. No matter when I'm up here, I want to be straightforward with you. And you've got to understand that both Jesus, Paul and James and the other apostles who wrote all said the same thing, that following Jesus is going to bring some pain into your life. There is no concept of following Jesus and holding hands with the world. There's no concept of that in scripture. So if you're trying to somehow figure out how you can be friends with the world and get more likes on your social media posts by compromising what you know to be true and try to walk with Jesus, you're not walking with Jesus, you're walking with the world and out of fellowship with Him. Why is Paul facing this? Why are you facing it? I want to give you a few things, five quickly. Why Paul is facing this and why you will too. First of all, he made a truth claim. When Paul was in that synagogue, He's making a claim of truth. And that truth is is that there is no other way into the kingdom except through Jesus. That's a truth claim
1: that will get you into some trouble. It will make some people kind of perk up and go, "Wait a minute. Who do you think you are to make such a truth claim?
0: Well, you're not making it the Bible. And on the authority of God's word, God's word to us, his revelation to us, both in his word and in Jesus, They both agree, and that is Jesus is the only way. The only way that you will not be tolerated is when you begin to make a claim of truth that is greater than somebody else's claim of truth. Now, if we can all just say you can have your truth and I can have mine, you'll be able to be friends with the world. In other words, you can follow Jesus. Just don't try to push your Jesus on me, and don't try to say that Jesus is better than Buddha or some other false God. As long as you don't go there, you'll be okay. As long as. You have your truth and the world has theirs. We're okay. But does Paul see it that way? No, Paul walks into a synagogue with the understanding and the idea that the truth he had to share was greater than any other truth that was in the room. Matter of fact, the truth they thought was truth was not truth at all. Why? The very moment you make a truth claim, the very moment you put yourself at odds, with this world. Secondly, he presented Christ as a better option. He presented Christ not only as a better option, but as the only option. So flowing right out of a truth claim, in a world that doesn't believe in any kind of absolute truth, he presented Christ as a better option. In that community, there were multiple gods, not just within Judaism as the one true Jehovah God, but in that community, they were believing in all kinds of god gods. And Paul walks in there and says, Jews, the God you believe in is not the God of the Bible. He sent his son Jesus to die. He is Messiah, and you've got to put your faith in him. The rest of the community would have heard Jesus as the one to follow when they've heard
1: about all kinds of other gods, and they're thinking, well, how could Jesus be any better than anybody else? The basic premise of the Great Commission is that Jesus is better. He is supreme.
0: Far better than any little god that anybody else is worshiping. That we go into the, 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 the opportunity to share the gospel, that Jesus is what the person needs and that he is better. And folks, we got to be okay with that. We can't lower Jesus down to where he's just like everyone else because if he is, then what's the point? The Jesus we serve, the Jesus we follow, he's going to come back, he's going to reign supreme,
1: he's going to separate the goats from the sheep, and you better choose today on which side you're going to be on. Third, he revealed a weakness in their worldview. So, So in this, in this exchange, in this
0: reasoning, Paul begins to show them the massive holes in what they
1: believe. Now Paul's doing it with respect, Paul's doing it with love, but Paul is doing it with precision. He's saying, look, you believe this, but yet there are massive problems with what you believe. You've begun to share your faith, you've been doing it for a long time, you have you have had a
0: struggle with trying to keep up with what the world's believing. It Seems like every time we turn around, there's a, there's a new God, a new belief, a new conglomeration of religions into some other belief system. And in your role as a missionary is not only to show the strength in following Jesus, but show the weakness in what they believe. Are you comfortable with doing that? Are you, are you solidified in, the God, in God's Word enough to be able to have those conversations. If not, I want to help you with that.
1: I'm going to help you with that. Coming in a couple of weeks. Okay? So I'll make an announcement about that. I want to help you with this. He reveals a weakness
0: in their worldview. Conversations, on the validity of a person's way, the way they do life. How, how do they see the purpose of life? How do, they, how do they see what happens after death? In other words, a great question to ask is, is, is what does is your religion or your belief teach that when you die, because we're all going to, what happens at the moment you breathe that last breath and you lose consciousness? What happens in that moment? That's
1: a good question to ask. No one wants to believe that they're wrong. No one wants to think that they've got it wrong, but yet they very well could have it wrong. Fourth, he was being used of God. Now, you might not think about this, but, but Paul is being used in that synagogue
0: in those areas where he goes, God's wind is in his sails. I think that's one of the reasons that the Jews were jealous, is that they could see God was using this man, yet
1: they couldn't agree with that their religion prevented them from crossing over into what Paul was teaching, and finally focused on the gospel. Society didn't corrupt you. You were corrupt when you were Society is broken because society is filled with broken people who are
0: offering all kinds of alternatives to the gospel to try to find truth and life and peace. And yet, it never actually leads to any of that. I hope you see that with Paul and what he's doing here, we're talking about long conversations, or we not? We're talking about engaging people over several cups of coffee and maybe several lunches and several meetings at the house and maybe several golf games and several little league baseball games and maybe several opportunities to sit down and read through scripture. We're talking about several indications. Can Jesus bring somebody to faith the first time you meet him? Absolutely. And we should be hoping that someone would be persuaded and join and release and surrender and repent. But it may take several conversations and the further our world gets in the darkness, the more we need to
1: reason and explain, explain the gospel heard a story about a missionary in India. And this missionary was in India and he was just appalled at how
0: many of the people there were sick simply because they were drinking water and bathing in the Ganges River. I don't know if you've ever seen any pictures of the Ganges River. That is not a river I'd even want to stick my toe in, much less drink out of. It is nasty, filthy water. People have Millions of people are bathing in it. Cattle are all in it. You can get the picture of just how nasty this water is. And this missionary is really troubled by that. So he, he decided that, that he was going to show uh, maybe this, this tribal leader just how nasty the water is with the hope that they would stop drinking the water and, and that they could get better and, and not be sick all the time. So this missionary brings a microscope with him. Now He's in a very, very, very poor area. And he gets a water sample out, and he puts it on a slide, and you didn't have to magnify it very much to see that there's all kinds of stuff crawling in that water, right? It's just nasty. So he sets this microscope in front of a guy who's never seen anything like it, has no concept of of microorganisms and how the water makes him sick. So he looks in, and and the missionary's like, look, see, this is why you're sick all the time. This is why you're sick. The guy looks up for the microscope, and he had an interesting question. He says, he asked the missionary, is there, is there any more of these devices in town? The missionary is like, no, this, this is the only one that I know of. The tribal leader, the guy from India, takes the microscope and bashes it against the ground.
1: You know why he did that? Because he didn't want the rest of the tribe to know water was that dirty. You know what he did next? He reaches into the water gets
0: some drink. Some people prefer to be in that place of ignorance, but you have been called to go into the world with light to show them that the world is broken and we've got to do it over and over and over again, even in spite of the fact when people get angry, in spite of the fact when people just put stuff on Facebook about us that is absolutely untrue and absolutely castigate us. We've been called, just as Paul
1: was called, just as Jesus said it would be, to go into a world that hates the truth and do what? claim the truth. You don't get a pass. I don't get a pass. And trying to hold hands with the world and hold hands with Jesus is not going
0: to work. It hasn't worked. It will never work. It can't work. The author of the article that I read at the very beginning, he says there's, there's two options here. Either acquiesce to the world or stick to your doctrines and die. Here's the other. I think there's a third here. I think we stick with the doctrines, stick with the truth of God, see people's lives transformed the way
1: ours was, and we see the church thrive, not die. Remember what Jesus said? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it." Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word and Paul's life. Uh, What an astounding life. Father, help us to be bold, courageous in a time where our community and our world needs us to be bold and courageous. Father, I think that as we consider and sing this last song, I feel, Father, as though that on the inside of some here today who are believers,
0: they've been spending way too much time trying to find acceptance from the Father, I believe that deep down, deep down, they know that the very every time they do that, the Holy Spirit brings conviction to say, "You know better than this." But yet, in our public, our public stand, we're we're not standing at all.
1: Father, I believe that they're bringing some reproach upon the church, upon themselves,
0: upon their families. Father, I pray that. As your followers, we would stop worrying about what
1: the world thinks. Only concern with what you think. our days are short. Our appointment with
0: you is coming. We're not guaranteed another day on the face of this earth. We're going to have to stand before you one day. Father, I pray that we could all stand knowing that, that we followed you faithfully, consistently, giving a reason for the hope that is within us for any person who wants to hear. Father, I pray that you would draw us to yourself, to your cross. this moment of commitment, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist
0: Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.